Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? In this episode, we're continuing our series into historical speeches and debates. And today we're going to be going back three decades to the first inauguration of one of America's most celebrated presidents, Ronald Reagan. Now, Reagan is seceding one-term Democrat Jimmy Carter, and he has a whole lot to say about the unnecessary and unwanted intrusions of government into society. And in this first clip, he's going to be acknowledging his opponent in a transition of power, but also describes how he's going to preserve tomorrow by acting today. So let's take a listen to this first clip. To a few of us here today, this is a solemn and most momentous occasion. And yet in the history of our nation, it is a commonplace occurrence. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Mr. President, I want our fellow citizens to know how much you did to carry on this tradition. By your gracious cooperation in the transition process, you have shown a watching world that we are a united people pledged to maintaining a political system which guarantees individual liberty to a greater degree than any other. And I thank you and your people for all your help in maintaining the continuity which is the bulwark of our republic. The business of our nation goes forward. These United States are confronted with an economic affliction of great proportions. We suffer from the longest and one of the worst sustained inflations in our national history. It distorts our economic decisions, penalizes thrift, and crushes the struggling young and the fixed income elderly alike. It threatens to shatter the lives of millions of our people. Idle industries have cast workers into unemployment, human misery, and personal indignity. Those who do work are denied a fair return for their labor by a tax system which penalizes successful achievement 
and keeps us from maintaining full productivity. But great as our tax burden is, it has not kept pace with public spending. For decades, we have piled deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future for the temporary convenience of the present. To continue this long trend is to guarantee tremendous social, cultural, political, and economic upheavals. You and I, as individuals, can, by borrowing, live beyond our means, but for only a limited period of time. Why then should we think that collectively, as a nation, we're not bound by that same limitation? We must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. And let there be no misunderstanding. We are going to begin to act beginning today. Now, before we get into breaking down this first clip, we want to take a moment to ask you to please support this show. Each month, we have server costs as well as the time spent developing the show. And to protect that independence, we never use ads. Your support today is going to keep us on the air tomorrow, so please take a minute to click on the link in the show notes and go to our website at subliminallycorrect.com. Click on the Support Us tab in the top right. And, you know, supporters are entitled to exclusive content that other listeners don't get. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and subscribe today and get those benefits as well. All right, so let's start by breaking down this first clip. Now, right here in the beginning, Reagan talks about this American exceptionalism as it pertains to the orderly transfer of elections. And then he thanks Mr. President, right, by which he means Jimmy Carter. And, you know, Carter here, if you look at the video, Carter is actually not sure when to nod and how much. He has this kind of long swallow that goes along with this. And when people applaud, he kind of gently decides just like nod his head in a very careful way. So let's just think about some of the history of how this, you know, led up here. Well, the 1980 presidential election, Ronald Reagan won 44 out of 50 states. Um, Jimmy Carter won D.C. Um, so that would be, you know, 51 if you're counting D.C. But here, you know, during Carter's term, there was, you know, rampant inflation, recession happened, and one of the big things that kind of brought him down was the Iran hostage crisis. So Carter also faced discord within his own party, meaning that he was at odds with Congress and he was refusing to play by those political rules. So what we're hearing in Ronald Reagan's speech right here is some allusion to that, where he's going to be talking about some of the failed policies of the previous administration and yet he's not going to directly say that. He's just going to blame it on government. And so we hear him talking here right as he begins that you know, careful thank you of the transition of power, um, talking about how the business of our nation goes forward. And so notice right from this very first phrase, what is that? What's right there within that passive voice, right? It's nominalized, the business of our nation. What does it mean, the business of our nation? Okay, what exactly is he describing there? And why does he call it a business? All right, what does he mean by that? What's the implication of calling it, you know, a business and not anything else? Well, he just says it goes forward as if it's this thing out there that is happening and that he has nothing to do with it. 
And you're going to hear him continually refer to this, where he's going to be talking about the excesses of government and how we need to empower the people as if he himself is not part of government. And so he's going to be kind of referring to things in this third-person way, describing government while at the same time, of course, you know, um, leading it. And so as he says here, you know, we suffer from the longest and one of the worst sustained inflations in our national history, an economic affliction of great proportions. This here is really a ding at, you know, Jimmy Carter and his administration and basically saying, hey, that's what we're leaving behind. Now, this is what I'm going to introduce into um, the presidency. Yeah, I really like the way that he was able to compare the individual uh, financial situation of individuals like you and me and uh, the financial system of the United States government and how those two are very similar that, you know, we can we can't live beyond our means forever as individuals. Why should the government be any different? Well, the government's really different (laughs) and uh, the government can take out a lot more money for a lot longer time. And it's something, it's sort of one of those analogies that sort of loses its meaning with scale. And I think a lot of economists would probably agree with that right there. And so what we've got here is sort of, you know, Ronald Reagan taking a uh, sort of false comparison there uh, between the two of them and using them to make his point of, you know, the government needs more, you know, balanced budget setting, which has been something that the Republicans for as long as I can remember uh, have been really big proponents of. Now, he goes further into all of this here of talking about how, you know, taxes are too high and we need to lower government spending. And, you know, he uses that phrase, mortgaging our future at the convenience of the present. And, you know, it's it's another one of those things where, you know, mortgaging, it's a personal finance term that he's applying to the larger government, you know, economic uh, fiscal policy and sort of relating them to, again, as if they're the same sort of thing right there. But he does it with some alliteration, too, there for the uh, mortgaging our future for the convenience of the present. It almost sounds like something you might hear on, uh, you know, like a used car salesman, say, or something snappy in like a television ad. And, you know, he really gets that because he comes from the world of sort of snappy lines uh, and is able to inject language like this with this cool alliteration. You know, we must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. And we are going to act beginning today. So the, the question here is, is it going to begin or is it beginning today and you know he's sort of playing with those words there to uh, create that ambiguous meaning that you know if I'm holding him accountable to what's actually happening after this speech you know he's sort of using those two terms interchangeably Uh, he could be talking about the situation getting better some unspecified time in the future when we're going to finally start making progress, 
or the progress is starting immediately and things are going to immediately start getting better. He's sort of right in both situations. And that's sort of where the ambiguity of time there and his phrasing really uh, creates its effect. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening to Reagan talking to us about how government is the problem. And he says it with no ambiguity whatsoever, that government is indeed the problem. And then he begins to move into some confusing language patterns. So let's take a listen to this next part. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule, that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? All of us together, in and out of government, must bear the burden. The solutions we seek must be equitable with no one group singled out to pay a higher price. We hear much of special interest groups. Well, our concern must be for a special interest group that has been too long neglected. It knows no sectional boundaries or ethnic and racial divisions, and it crosses political party lines. It is made up of men and women who raise our food, patrol our streets, man our mines and factories, teach our children, keep our homes, and heal us when we're sick. Professionals, industrialists, shopkeepers, clerks, cabbies, and truck drivers. They are, in short, we the people. This breed called Americans. Well, this administration's objective will be a healthy, vigorous, growing economy that provides equal opportunities for all Americans with no barriers born of bigotry or discrimination. Putting America back to work means putting all Americans back to work. Ending inflation means freeing all Americans from the terror of runaway living costs. All must share in the productive work of this new beginning, and all must share in the bounty of a revived economy. With the idealism and fair play which are the core of our system and our strength, we can have a strong and prosperous America at peace with itself and the world. So as we begin, let us take inventory. We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. And this makes us special among the nations of the earth. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. It is time to check and reverse the growth of government, which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment 
and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. All right, so here we're listening to Ronald Reagan talk to us about how government is not the solution to our problem, the problems in which he enumerated, talking to us about all about the inflation and the horrible things that are happening to all these groups within America. But government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Now, this is what's known as a complex equivalence. When you have basically two things being compared and made to be equal, and whenever you have one thing on one side, one thing on the other side, and what's bridging it together is the verb, a variation of the verb to to be, so government is the problem, Imagine a little equal sign there. So what he's saying is government equals the problem. That's literally what he's saying here in the structure of language. But of course, as we were just saying, isn't he part of the government? But when he frames the government as the problem, he's able to now go up against some of the things within government that maybe he wasn't a big fan of. And, you know, talking about shrinking the government. And of course, you know, how is that defined? Well, People might have a different definition of what it means to actually shrink the government. And he has this um, illusion here where he talks about it's, it used to be believed that an elite group of superior people was a better way of being governed, governed than a government of, by, and for the people, which is an allusion to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So what's happening here is that Ronald Reagan is calling back to an earlier speech, and we've heard this, you know, so often. We heard it, you know, where Bill Clinton was talking about how years, decades, you know, prior that Martin Luther King was giving his speech. And Martin Luther King, in turn, was referencing and alluding to years prior what had happened there. And so being able to reference an earlier time gives things this, well, it just gives it this, this, feel of across time, this sense of everything is happening magically. Well, when people are viewing things over a big enough timeline, they don't have to get into the details. They don't have to get into the conflict that might have occurred at that time. Instead, it's just, this is what did happen. We survived. We've put a positive frame on it. And because of that, we can look back and see everything that happened as having been positive, especially the very positive moments. And, you know, what I really found interesting here is how he's doing this nice little confusing language pattern where he talks about if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? (laughs) It's like on the surface, that seems to make sense, right? It's like, well, if no one can govern, you know, themselves, then who can govern someone else? But think about what he's saying here. He's saying that no one, that's a universal quantifier, no one is capable of, has the ability to govern themselves, meaning, you know, doing things that might require executive functioning, of being able to like get up in the morning and do tasks and make things work in their lives. Is that really ever true that no one has the capacity to do that? Well, not really, but he somehow ties that to How government having the federal government, let's be clear what he's talking about here, how the federal government having more power somehow means 
that people themselves are not able to govern. And again, this is kind of ambiguous the way that he's describing it because you have the word govern that's being used in multiple ways. I'm just giving one way that can be interpreted. Well, he's tying that to what the individual is able to do. And so who among us then has the capacity to govern someone else? And so what he's saying is, look, if you can't do it yourself, how can you do it to another person? And he kind of puts people on the same level as if someone who, for example, specializes in public policy or specializes in, you know, foreign affairs or who, you know, is a scientist is kind of at the same level or has the same amount of specialized knowledge as someone who, um, you know, might be the cabbie or the truck driver or the person across the counter. And, you know, he's using the the sense of human dignity and worth on a grand scale to then scale it up and say, well, that's exactly the same in terms of their skills or their abilities or their capabilities, which isn't exactly true. But notice how he fits all of that meaning here just within this little kind of confusing phrase. Yeah, it's funny coming from somebody who just got elected to govern to talk about how none among us uh, is capable of governing himself and therefore shouldn't have the capacity to govern anyone else. Uh, it, it kind of, uh, you know, s- screams of irony there that this is coming from um, this man who just got elected to govern everything. And it really strikes a lot to a lot of Republican platform right there, you know, that uh, like Taylor mentioned, uh, the phrase government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And how he's actually part of the government, like Taylor said, you know, that right there is a lot of the Republican platform that government has gotten too bloated, too convoluted and, you know, too complex. Therefore, it shouldn't exist. And, you know, this is really uh, a slippery slope sort of argument here. It's sort of that, you know, the only direction is one of two ways to keep on bloating government and have it be ineffective or somehow shrink government and end its power in some ways and that that solves the problem. But there's a lot more nuance to all of that. It's, you know, if your car isn't working, you don't just roll it down a cliff and get rid of it. You might take it to a mechanic and have it get fixed. You might find new ways for it to work in another way that actually works for everybody who needs it to work. There are there are other nuances that he sort of ignores. Um, and it's a lot of the Republican platform right there to, you know, take things that aren't working and to say that we should throw them out wholesale. And, you know, that's really what we get here with with his platform here and a lot with this with these economic arguments, too. You know, this right here ties a lot into his his phrases there about, you know, the taxes being too high and the government spending being too much. Those right there come before this section because he's using both of these to make that argument that this bloated government is the reason for all of these taxes and all of these taxes lead to a bloated government and that they both need to, you know, be eliminated in this way. And so, you know, he he plays with these ideas here and uses this alliteration to all make this all seem, you know, so common sense. 
and you know really lay out a vision that seems cohesive but if you were to dig down into the actual phrases of what he's saying here it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense um, and you know can be reduced to a lot of interdependencies that really aren't dependent at all now in this next clip reagan is going to tell us about how he intends to make it work let's take a listen all of us all of us need to be reminded that the federal government did not create the states the states created the federal government Now, so there will be no misunderstanding, it's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work, work with us, not over us, to stand by our side, not ride on our back. Government can and must provide opportunity, not smother it, foster productivity, not stifle it. If we look to the answer, as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, we have never been unwilling to pay that price. It is no coincidence that our present troubles parallel and are proportionate to the intervention and intrusion in our lives that result from unnecessary and excessive growth of government. It is time for us to realize that we are too great a nation to limit ourselves to small dreams. We are not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. So with all the creative energy at our command, let us begin an era of national renewal. Let us renew our determination, our courage, and our strength. And let us renew our faith and our hope. We have every right to dream heroic dreams. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. You can see heroes every day going in and out of factory gates. Others, a handful in number, produce enough food to feed all of us and then the world beyond. You meet heroes across a counter and they're on both sides of that counter. There are entrepreneurs with faith in themselves and faith in an idea who create new jobs, new wealth and opportunity. There are individuals and families who take taxes support the government and whose voluntary gifts support church, charity, culture, art and education. Their patriotism is quiet but deep. Their values sustain our national life. Now, I have used the words they and their in speaking of these heroes. I could say you and your, because I'm addressing the heroes of whom I speak, 
you the citizens of this blessed land. Your dreams, your hopes, your goals are going to be the dreams, the hopes, and the goals of this administration. So help me God. Well, I really love what he does here. And this is something that, you know, politicians sometimes do, but he really leans into it. This is flattering the listener. And he spent a lot of time focused on this, this idea that, you know, the listener is the citizen and that the government is here to serve them and that these heroes that are out in the world, well, these heroes are actually, believe it or not, they're actually you. You're a hero and you're a hero. Everyone's a hero. And it's a way for him to, A, build rapport with the individual because, you know, I think if we really took some time to sit and think about it, there are some people that are more heroic than others. But uh, he still manages to reduce the the standard for hero to something that is so low that everybody in the world, or the nation at least, can be considered a hero. And so he sort of uses this here to build the case that everyone is a hero and he's going to create the government that's going to be of the heroes, for the heroes, and by the heroes. And, you know, it's just, it's funny the way that he does that. He also goes back to this whole idea of, you know, the the unleashing of energy and individual genius of man. Again here, that everybody in America is somehow special and that we've all got this energy and genius here that's living within each of us. And, you know, it's almost it's almost biblical or spiritual here, the way that he frames all of this, that somehow all of this, uh, the freedom and dignity of the individual and this this individual energy or soul is, you know, more available in America than anywhere else on Earth. You know, he sort of uses this retrospective reasoning that somehow throughout all of the history of America, all of these events that have led up until now have been sort of a divine intervention by God and this divine energy within each one of us with our individual genius has created a uh, a perfect state of freedom and dignity. Well, he uses all of that there in an interesting way because you know the phrase more available is interesting because it doesn't mean an absolute it it just means it has to be a fraction more than in other places he doesn't really define the way in which this divine intervention or this genius or this energy here uh, by by what measure is it more available than anywhere else on earth what defines energy does nowhere else on earth have the same type of energy or the same types of genius or the same types of dignity i mean maybe not the same freedom but you know he is able to play with that phrasing there and sort of create this inevitability this divine intervention narrative that he doesn't actually come out and explicitly say very often but sort of just uses this phrasing around it about these these special characteristics of individuals in America that are, you know, the only logical place that they could have come from is divine intervention. 
Yeah, he talks about all this creative energy that's at our command. And if you think about it, that's actually a truism, right? That creative energy is the energy of that which doesn't exist yet. So yeah, we have a lot of creative energy at our command, and so does everyone else, but that doesn't really make much uh, difference. It's important for him to kind of you know, bring that into the speech, that pure potentiality of everything that we can be. And that's the idea is it's he's expanding the awareness and this very inductive reasoning style into look at all these things that could happen based on what I'm telling you now. And so, you know, it's not so much about everything that went before, but it is about here's what can happen. So notice how he's creating this very divine bridge of time to say all the way in the past oh it was amazing all the way in the future it is going to be amazing because who we are in that creative energy and the freedom and dignity of man and then you know he goes into this this thing you know talking about how freedom has you know had its price and we've never been unwilling to pay the price of freedom and then in the very next paragraph right after that he goes into the excesses of government. So it's no coincidence that our present troubles parallel and are proportionate to, in other words, he's saying they're the same, to the intervention and intrusion in our lives that result from unnecessary government. So he's linking the price of freedom to the intrusion of government. He's saying here that if you want more freedom, you need to decrease the intrusion, and you know even that word, of course, intrusion, you need to decrease that government. And so just think about the frame that he has created here, even though the freedom he's talking about in point A isn't the same type of freedom he talks about there in point B. But by putting these two concepts right next to each other, he creates an effect, a punctuational ambiguity, one that is ambiguous just by the way that it's phrased, you know, there within the sentence. And one of the things that I really liked most here um, within his this part of the speech is when he starts talking about how it's my intention to make it work. And he wants for government to work with us, not over us, stand by our side, not ride on our back. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So what is he doing here? He's playing around with the submodalities of the situation. If you don't know what submodalities are, think of them as the qualities of representing something in our mind. So, for example, if we have a picture, right, that picture can kind of be above us or below us. It can be right in front of us at eye level. Depending on which it is, is the submodality of the picture called height, right? How high is it? Well, he's playing around with this height of the submodality. Now, here's one of the things I know about this is that when you take a picture, when you take a representation, meaning something that someone's imagining, and you put it above them, think of this like someone is in a courtroom and they're looking up at the judge or they're in the congressional hearing and they're looking up at the senators. Well, that conveys a sense of authority and, you know, awe and, you know, oh, you better defer to that. When you bring the representation down below them, in other words, they're looking down upon someone that one would be looking up to, one's looking down upon, well, now you get that kind of sense of contempt. But what happens when you put something at eye level? Well, it seems to be that it's a lot more manageable and literally what he's doing here, I know it doesn't seem like much, 
But literally what he's doing here is changing the emotional relationship to the concept that he's describing. So he's saying, we're not going to put government as something up there to be, you know, yes, respected, but also feared. Instead, we're going to bring it down so that it's on the same eye level with you. But you consider, you know, there's a reason why the Supreme Court still does not allow it to be streamed through video, right? Why? Why is it that Roberts has insisted on that, that it's you know not allowed to be put through video? It's because they want to keep it in that kind of awe space, that space of being respected. And so it was just really interesting here how Reagan actually you know, changes that representation to talk about how he wants it to work with us, not over us. And so in doing so, he's making it much more manageable and changing their relationship to it. All right. I think that's all the time we've got for today. Head on over to our website at sublimallycorrect.com. You can find the support us tab in the top right corner, or you can go to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and support us for as little as $5 a month to get us a cup of coffee. Help us keep this show on the air. Now, if you love the show and you want other people to be able to find it, you can go to iTunes or the Apple Podcast app and rate us there. The Apple Podcast app really is the best way for people to discover us because all the other apps use the Apple Podcast app for their reference. So be sure to head there. And if you have questions, comments, or ideas for the show, go to Twitter. You can tweet at us at SubliminalPod and also our Facebook page. And we will talk to you next week. Next week.